Think, debate, inspire. Debates on pressing global challenges. A podcast of the Robert Bosch Academy. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the podcast series, Think, Debate, Inspire of the Robert Bosch Academy. My name is Pradnya Bivalkar, a senior project manager at the Robert Bosch Academy. And my name is Henry Altaka, senior vice president of the Robosch Foundation. And the Robosch Academy is an institution of the foundation based in Berlin. Our guest for the second podcast episode today is Ekaterina Schulman, a political scientist from Russia specializing in legislative processes. She's been affiliated with a number of educational institutions, including the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences, the Russian Presidential Academy of National Economy and Public Administration. She's also worked in various roles as a civil servant. Um, and in addition to all of this, she is also an expert on domestic affairs in Russia. And in a weekly show on her YouTube channel, she provides her viewers insights into current affairs in Russia. Ekaterina Schulman is currently in Berlin as a Richard von Weizsäcker Fellow. Today we would like to talk uh, with her about domestic affairs in Russia, the ongoing war in Ukraine and so much more. Welcome to the podcast, Ekaterina. Thank you, Pradnea. Thank you for this rather imposing introduction. It makes me sound so serious and, and in fact, quite important. <laughs> Thank you for this. <laughs> Which is both true. <laughs> that's, that's why you are here. And so we are very grateful for this. Thank you very much. Um, so this podcast is going to air at the end of February. And uh, we obviously have to talk about what happened uh, a year ago. Um, and we do want to do this not from a military perspective. We want to understand better Russia. And that's why we are talking to you, because you are someone who can explain Russia and the domestic um, uh, politics uh, well. Um, and I think before we talk about the future and the present, we want to look back a little bit um, and want to ask you, you know, what could we have known um, 14 months ago, 16 months ago that we didn't see? I was among those of my colleagues who also have not thought a full-scale invasion uh, highly probable. Of course, we were seeing the build-up, both the military and the rhetoric build-up in the weeks preceding uh, the actual invasion, but that was something very much like to what has happened in 2021 when uh, there was a similar scenario, uh, military exercises that looked uh, a lot like preparations for a war, uh, escalation of rhetoric in uh, state-controlled media, but then it all boiled down to a Geneva meeting between the presidents of uh, United States and Russian Federation. So we were under the impression that that may be the repetition of the same kind of thing. And now um, when one year has passed, it is interesting to ask ourselves rather than uh, to try to find blame with others outside of Russia and asking what they have missed. It's interesting to analyze what have we missed, we, the people inside the country. And it's interesting for me to understand now that our predictions were based not on wishful thinking, not on the idea that the war is too horrible to happen. Political scientists know that war happens. Political history is written with the blood of, of the people. So we are not uh, over usually over-optimistic in our view of societies and political regimes. But we, and I am among those, us, um, we were thinking that specifically the political system that has been in existence for about 20 years in Russia is extremely ill-equipped for an exercise of this kind. 
It is a highly imitative political model. It's a kleptocracy. Economically speaking, it's a resource-based autocracy where the rationale for the existence of this political model and the elites inhabiting and running it is exploitation of resources. It is preservation of power and self-enrichment. And this uh, political regime, which placed such high value on, again, creating an impression, uh, creating a false impression more often than not, imitating everything from democratic institutions like parliaments or elections, things that I do study, to even the scale of repressions it's capable of. Because on that side, there was also a lot of uh, attempts, unsuccessful attempts, not so much to repress as to terrorize people into passivity. Speaking from the um, point of view of the society, it is the society based on atomization, depolitization, uh, civic passivity. And for this political machine to venture into a 19th century style full-scale war with another state was not what we thought probable. And why am I pointing attention to this now? Uh, because we were mistaken in our assumption. But our assumption was based on correct observations of political reality. And now, a year into this war, we see that indeed our political system is not so well qualified to set to, to achieve the task that it has set to itself. So in science, in scholarship, being mistaken sometimes teaches you more than guessing rightly. Anyone can guess correctly, but uh, not everyone can make conclusions. Thank you. This is uh, an astute and slightly depressing observation of the political system. Um, so you, you said you know, this imitative system of bad governance that fell into a 19th century uh, way of warfare. And this 19th century part I would like to pick up on um, because it seems like one of the current theories of what we in the West outside of Russia have gotten wrong was that we tried to analyze behavior of the political elite um, with rational means or with logical uh, reasoning, so to speak. But that some of the things that uh, at least Vladimir Putin seems to follow as a more imperial, um, more psychologically more difficult understand of uh, a form of motivation for his actions. And my question, I guess, is number one, is that right? Is that true? Is that kitchen psychology? And number two, is that a view of the world and Russia's position in it that is shared by the political elite or the general public in the country? Or is that just one person sitting in the Kremlin? I am naturally being a scholar and a scientist. I'm very much against the mystification of anything. Uh, there's a subject, we can study it. Uh, Russian political elites very much like to paint themselves and the country in general as this mysterious, uh, unsearchable, mystical thing that moves in its own uh, way, which is incomprehensible to a rational Western mind. This is, to put it mildly, uh, would bullshit be putting it mildly? Uh, <laughs> Not really. <laughs> and here it again helps uh, to uh, be studying social sciences because um, in, in social environment, we understand rational action as any action which is directed to a particular goal. The goal may be unachievable. It may be actually not in the best interest of the actor to achieve it. He may or she may not achieve it. 
he or she may be stupid. It happens all the time. But that does not make him or her irrational. So there was an object. For an autocracy, specifically for personalized autocracy, the one and only object of its very existence is preservation of power. You would say that preserving power by sitting still rather than attacking another country would have been a more rational or what you really mean, a more clever tactic. This may be so from your point of view, but from the point of view of an autocrat inhabiting his own highly specific information bubble, it would have come as a quite logical conclusion when seeing, for example, previous experiences with Crimea and the consequent sky-high rise in popularity, subsequent decline of this popularity, then a repressive campaign of 2020-2021, which did not get the popularity back. So you have elections in front of you. Authoritarian elections are highly specific events. They are not like elections in a democracy because leadership change does not happen. But they are important nonetheless because they are needed to demonstrate first popular support, and second, administrative control. You have declining popularity. You have changed the constitution in order to ensure that any form of transit that happens in five or six or seven years' time happens on your terms, because that, this is what I think was the rationale behind those constitutional changes, which now are largely forgotten because of the many events that have um, superseded them. Your elites are starting to look around and to think that one day or other leadership change is bound to take place. So wouldn't it be a clever and nice move to make to repeat on a larger scale your success of 2014? You have information coming to you saying that Ukrainian political model is rotten, that their elites are also looking around, that the president is losing popularity, that the West is indifferent as it was indifferent in 2014. So you push it and it crumbles. So why not seize the opportunity? Especially since you're not getting any younger, your faithful crew is not getting any younger either, and you understand distinctly or indistinctly that even other members of the elites, the broader members of the ruling bureaucracy, are not that keen on either Ukraine in particular or foreign policy adventures in general, because this is really not the topic in the minds of either the people or the elites. But now time seems very much fitting one, because you have resources, you have the money, you've been told that your army is in brilliant condition, you have some new kind of weaponry that you fancy, and you have, as you imagine, time, well, for example, before the next presidential elections in the United States, because our uh, ruling elite is ridiculously attentive to whatever happens in the United States. They have no understanding of the way democratic machine works, but they always watch for some friendly sort of guy to become U.S. president. They have already had their luck once. It didn't help in, in anything whatsoever, but this didn't change this absurd perception. So if you try to put yourself for a moment in the high-heeled shoes of our specific autocrat, you will perhaps see that this is not so irrational. This is not driven by some imperial mindset in the sense of uncontrollable urge to conquer other people's territories. The plan itself, as I was told by military experts I trust, the plan of this strike on Kiev was not absurd. As I was told, it could have been carried through 
maybe. So if this picture of uh, this very loosely constructed Ukrainian political system in general were correct, we could imagine such an outcome that this sudden onslaught creates panic, chaos, uh, defection, uh, and the people are thinking maybe we'd be better off with a Russia-friendly government, because why not? Again, now it sounds absurd or cynical, but there's nothing actually absurd about those two neighboring countries having governments that are friendly to each other. In fact, this is the the one natural way. Uh, But now it's almost uh, unthinkable. So again, It is not rational. It is not absurd. It is stupid in a sense that it was based on a lot of false assumptions. But having false assumptions is the curse of autocracies. They close themselves from outside world. They are distrustful. They hunt free media. They put down uh, horizontal grassroots civic activity. They despise independent expertise. They are generally unfriendly to anything that is intellectual. So they are left with whatever information they are being fed by their own security services. You get rewarded for bringing information which collaborates with the views the leadership already has. And if you say something that is different, you are either ignored or maybe punished. And this in time, if it takes long enough, and if the organization is well isolated enough, it results in this, again, very specific and weird uh, world picture that you end up with. Hmm, very interesting. I mean, what, what's interesting about that explanation is that it, it kind of forces us to put the question to a, a level further in the front, because if we say it was rational based on wrong assumptions or information, then the question is, why didn't we know on what assumptions and information uh, the Kremlin makes the decision that they're making? Because then we could have been able to force Yes, them. that's a very good question. In the, And in this respect, I would advise to listen to official speeches and publications by, well, permanent members of Security Council. It may sound like drill, more often than not, it is, but it is wrong to think that it is just there to impress external audiences. Partly, yes. All these permanent members of Security Council, they are Soviet people, and Soviet people can never see the relations between what they think, what they say, and what they do. For them, it's widely three widely different matters. So they, as a Russian expression is, they lie like they breathe. That is true, but still, uh, not the substance, but rather the style, the kind of narrative, well, framework within which this drivel happens. This may give you the idea of the kind of things they talk among themselves. Because you can lie about facts, and you do, but you place those false facts in within a certain narrative. And this narrative is characteristic. So read official speeches and uh, speeches like, which do not often make their way into um, broader press, like um, the president comes to the collegium of the Minister of Internal Affairs. And there he says something and the minister says something. I always read this kind of thing because it's my cup of tea, watching what bureaucracy does. And in this, in this way, you can sense at least, well, the, the internal atmosphere out there. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, thank you for those insights, Ekaterina, into the political apparatus, um, how it works in the in, in the internal affairs in Russia. I don't think it's very unique. 
actually. No, but I think often the discussion about it is very one way or, or coming from a specific perspective. Um, moving away from that, I would like to go on to um, the current status or the way things are in the Russian society. You have mentioned it many times in a series of interviews that you've given that this war is peculiar in many ways. The economy seems to be doing fairly okay. The kind of support that this war elicits from the older group of people is is very surprising compared to the younger group of people who support it. And that the war actually became a big thing internally in Russia only once the mobilization started. How does this peculiar set of circumstances strengthen the Kremlin in continuing the onslaught and what, what needs to change for people to see it in a different light? Like, for instance, you said mobilization was a turning point in many ways than one. So I was wondering if you could give us some insights on that. It is true that the single most important factor determining how a respondent feels about the war is age. Nothing else is of this importance. So it's really very, very simple and startling in its simplicity. The younger the strata, the less support. This is the war of the elderly in every respect. It's been initiated by a group of 70-somethings, and it is supported by a group of 60-plus it is more supported by males than by females, even in the elder um, groups. But still, age is of paramount importance. The second in importance uh, factor is um, economic position, economic situation. And this, again, is somewhat surprising because this war is supported by those who are better off, economically speaking. Uh, the poorer, uh, they are more against it. This is kind of, there's a kind of tragic irony in all this, because exactly this better off elder people have nothing to do with the war. They will not be mobilized, they will not volunteer, they will not suffer the consequences in any way. But those who are younger and poorer, they bear the brunt of this and, the, and they don't like it. So there may be logic there. Uh, speaking of economic position, it would be worthwhile to understand that what when we speak of middle class in strictly financial terms, in terms of financial situation, then a large part of Russian middle class would be uh, civil servants and uh, people working in law enforcement. They have stable salaries. They work either in the state apparatus as such or in uh, state corporations, state banks. So they have a natural interest in the prolongation of the status quo. Uh, but those who are in the free commercial sector of economy, they, of course, have no reason at all to be uh, happy with what is happening. And, of course, the urban population, anyone whose profession is dependent on international cooperation on the open world, they are, of course, the main sufferers from all this. I must also say, speaking of the poor, um, classes. Russia is a poor country. Um, real disposable people's incomes have been on the rise for 15 years, but this stopped in 2014. And since 2014, uh, the higher and higher percentage of uh, incomes of households depend on the state. They come from social payments, they come from budget directly or indirectly. So this makes a kind of paternalistic society. And there is also another factor which relates directly to people's behavior in this war. Um, those who volunteer, 
or those who are mobilized are, and those who die in this war are being paid or the families are being paid. And this is the kind of money that the state has never, ever paid to the working people. So it's something unique. And there's also a system of privileges for the families being, uh, well, invented and uh, applied. Uh, it's like... Um, uh, exemptions from uh, credit payments, uh, children can enter any university without exams, etc. So a person who goes to war is definitely not motivated by uh, any, any fancy reasons. If there were such people, they volunteered in the very beginning when it just started. But later when this payment slash privileges system was set in place, uh, it makes a dismal kind of sense for a person to, yes, sacrifice himself so that his family will be provided for in a way he could never provide for it himself. That's the tragedy where the state that has intentionally kept a large mass of people poor is exploiting the vulnerabilities of this poverty. And if I might follow up on one thing that you said, it really caught my attention. You said the war is being led by some people who are 70 plus. It's being supported by people who are 60 plus. And I'm wondering, where is the voice of the people who are between 30 and 60? Is it just because they're not sitting in, in decisive positions that they cannot do anything about it? Or it, it just doesn't matter? Because that's still a sizable part of the population and, and their interests are nowhere on the spectrum, at least yes. from what, what we've that's, been seeing. That's, very, that's a very true uh, observation. Uh, Russia being a conservative autocratic system that's been in place, as I said, for 20 plus years, the top tier of um, any administrative or commercial structure will likely be occupied by those 65 plus Mm -hmm. So the uh, generation of those between, I would say, yes, 30 and, and 60 is unfortunate in a way that it's sandwiched between the younger people who have more mobility and the elder people who don't want to go. So there's rather a lot of them, although it is also an uh, unfortunate coincidence, perhaps, that uh, those 60 plus, they belong to the so-called Soviet boomer generation, and it's a large one. Mm -hmm. So after this, um, birth rates started getting lower and lower. So if you look at Russian demographic pyramid, it doesn't look much like a pyramid, so it tapers uh, to, to the bottom. It looks like a kind of Christmas tree that has seen better times. Uh, so those aged 40 and around are always called the sandwich generation because mm -hmm. they have children they need to care for and they have parents who uh, more often than not need their support as well. But historically speaking, in this moment and socially speaking, uh, this large generation is indeed sandwiched between uh, those, those traders. And the younger choose exit over voice, to use Hartman's um, methodology. And it's been rather Russian tradition to choose exit in any uh, situation of danger or discomfort. If we do have a tradition, it is this. We are a large country. There's always somewhere to go. The government has more often than not been, yes, autocratic, but not too effective. So it cannot achieve the total control it's always aiming at. So the peasantry has been running from... Um, 
the landlords uh, to Siberia, to the Far East. Religious groups, ethnic groups have been going to those places where the Tsarist government couldn't get them. Intelligentsia has always chosen immigration whenever there's a chance. And now that there is such a thing as global labor market, of course, those who are younger and do not have stable uh, connections or responsibilities uh, in, in their country they, they choose to go. It may be safe to say that for every person mobilized, there were three who ran away. Mm -hmm. Can I just squeeze in one question on, on the role of the military or the, not the role of the military, because you mentioned how the military can actually be a way to gain an opportunity, financially, safety, and bizarre um, contradiction, but... Um, My question is, like, how does the general Russian population see the military uh, apart from what you have described as a source of economic income? Because what I was surprised of is like some of the Levada uh, um, research has shown that there's a, a lot of support for the military among the Russian population, which contradicts in my perception what we have seen at the beginning of mobilization where, you know, the people were demonstrating very bravely, um, uh, where, you know, the, or there's this tradition of like the Russian mothers of uh, veterans or of soldiers who demonstrated already in previous uh, incursions, where I had the feeling there is a movement against militarization but then the data seems to show there's actually a lot of it's nearly like the american yellow ribbon that you know you put on to be supportive with the military so what is the role of the military for the general public and by the way any such uh, social movement like the yellow ribbon you mentioned is absolutely impossible in, in russia that's a kind of thing we, we never do so i think there are two things to uh, mention here On one hand, uh, I think I know what uh, Levada research uh, you mean. They've been studying for decades uh, trust for institutions. And at the top of this rating, you always have this conservative triad, president, the army, the Orthodox Church. These are the entities, social political entities, who are mostly uh, trusted or, or respected by the uh, respondents. So it's been a very stable thing. Um, the military reforms of the last decade have contributed to this attitude. As you may have known, the uh, term of uh, conscription, military conscription, has been lessened from two years to one. And the infamous cases of the so-called didavshina, informal violent practices uh, in the army, have been growing less. At least every such case became the, the center of public attention. And the Minister of Defense invested huge sums and effort into its public relations campaign. And people really stopped being afraid of the army in the way they were in the late Soviet and early post-Soviet years, because if you didn't want to go, you had many ways to avoid it. It was not that hard. But many people wanted to go because for them, it was a sort of social lift. After you have served for a year as a conscript, you could sign uh, to be a contracted uh, military personnel. And this gives you a working place, access to, uh, for example, cheap mortgage, so you can buy an apartment and you have a kind of career before you. So for young people with no social capital from poor regions, it was quite an opportunity. I think that, again, tragically, this contributed to the first... Uh, 
and different and even positive attitudes towards mobilization in the first crucial days and weeks when mobilization started. Because people had an idea that it's something along the lines of military service which they cease to be afraid of. I have read it on social media, like parents saying that, yes, my, my son has got this. Pavestka, uh, this letter from uh, the uh, military commissariat. But he's a young man. Should, will he go hiding from authorities all his life? Okay, he'll serve for a year somewhere near the, his home, and then he'll be back, like he, he goes to serve in the army. And then, again, in a very few weeks, it, of course, emerged that it's a completely different thing, that it's not some kind of training, that it's not serving in the army, that it's not guarding some, uh, I don't know, uh, some Paris. building um, far from the front lines, that it's certain swift and certain death, nothing else. And then this, this movement uh, began. Uh, this is from... Uh, the situation from the point of view of, of the people. From the point of view of the elites, there's this curious thing in, in uh, Russia that while security services have been and continue to be influential political actors in their own right, army and the navy are not. Starting at least since the end of the Second World War, the army is not a political player. Even with the war, I do not see this state of things as changing, at least, at least not yet. So with all its seeming uh, presence, big presence in the public sphere, with all its uh, high position in the ratings of institutional trust, the army and the army people are not influential as a group. They do not form a group. Mm -hmm. But now looking forward, I know it's a very simplistic question, but maybe without getting tempted to speculate too much. Um, maybe you could give us a rough idea about what do you think needs to happen for things to change, for this status quo that has been here for a year now, for something to change systematically, for, for things to look a little different going on from this point. Well, uh, a huge number of things could affect uh, what is going on and could change the trajectory of events. We are, after all, in a personalized autocracy and it's called personalized for a reason. So uh, it's very much, it has been very much of a personal investment for the leader, for the Russian president. Uh, I am strongly suspicious that no one else is so keen on conquering Ukraine as he is. But now it's his personal thing. So Whatever happens to him, of course, influences uh, what is happening uh, in the country. In terms of regime stability, the system certainly has resources that makes it resilient. But then this is the thing that you often hear repeated, and it's true. We enjoy uh, the uh, comforts of more or less market economy, and this is what keeps the uh, country functional. We have a more or less uh, effective Bureaucracy, especially civic bureaucracy, regional governance, and at the top, uh, financial economic uh, block, the so-called financial economic block of the Russian government. These people know their job, and it is them who are saving the country or the regime, uh, whichever side you, you want to look at it. Uh, so this is the thing, of course. But I do not think it relates directly on the question you ask, as we hear this connection made quite often, that Russia is strong enough to go with this war for, for a decade. Wars are not over when you kill the last soldier or when you spend your last dollar or rubble. Uh, 
or when you fire your last shot. You do not need a country collapsing for it to change its policies. Wars are over, again, very simplistically speaking, when elites think it is to their advantage to stop the war rather than to go on with it. And this is the most important point. It doesn't sound inspiring. But what things really depend on is this constantly ongoing calculation in the minds of the Russian ruling elite as to whether status quo is to their advantage or the change in status quo is to their advantage. And this computation, this calculation is going on 24-7 in the mind of every person around the president and around those around the president and then in, in circles. So far... They seem to think collectively that trying to change something is more dangerous than sticking to status quo. Mm -hmm. How and when do these perceptions change? The honest answer is we do not know. But then these people also inhabit their own specific information bubble. And I'm also seeing an attempt on the part, not an unsuccessful attempt, on the part of the leadership to buy loyalties of the elites, buy uh, an extremely large-scale campaign of embezzlement. I will not go into details now, but from certain peculiarities of uh, Russian budgetary process, legislative process, and what we know of such things as the so-called restoration of Mariupol, mm -hmm. we can see, and for example, uh, who gets the assets abandoned by um, Western companies in Russia, and who gets the assets in the so-called new or liberated territories. From those factors, we can see that it is an enrichment campaign for the elites on the scale of the 90s. And this is how loyalty is being bought. So this needs to tell those people that they are the beneficiaries of the current status quo. They're the beneficiaries of this war and they have an interest in either the war going on or the war ending on some terms advantages to, again, not to Russia, but to current Russian leadership. Mm -hmm. That's all we can say for, for the moment. But to try to prophesy that Russia can go on for, as I said, 10 years, or war will be over in 2023. I do not know what such computations may be based on. Mm -hmm. Now moving on to another area uh, of your expertise, which is legislative processes within Russia. You've consistently maintained that um, despite Western reservations, Russian political, especially the legislative apparatus, has the potential to enable and deliver on a regime transformation if it were to come to that. Um, so my question to you would be, if at all there was a chance that presence itself, um, what would your advice be to key stakeholders in the West that would go a long way in strengthening democratic structures inside of Russia? Because the discussion largely right now focuses on what does the West need to change in their relation to Russia, but also there are some things that also need to change inside of Russia. And maybe that's something that they could also consider when it comes to having an approach. Well, uh, even with um, the very harmful changes that have taken place in the Russian constitution in 2020, we still have the framework or rather the skeleton of a democratic political structure like 
parliament, like political parties, like theoretically absence of censorship and free press. So uh, even the implementation of current constitutional provisions, if they are implemented in good faith, uh, would result in a much, much more uh, free society. But one thing we can take away from the experience of the past 15 years is, I think, this. Every step towards isolation, or in official parlance, it's called sovereignty. But when we come to consider what the sovereignty means, it just means isolated, isolating itself from outside world. So every step in this direction has been the step towards poverty, violence, lack of freedom, and finally war. So by adverse logic, whenever there's a chance, a window of opportunity, or a little a very small window of opportunity, perhaps, uh, for Russia to change in a positive way. The way to go would be to be part as much as possible in international legal and political structures. I understand that at this moment it sounds counterintuitive because what happens is exactly the opposite. But this is what makes me think that since so much effort has been taken by uh, Russian leadership, sadly in in conjunction with Western leadership to sever the connections uh, between our country and the world. And it was inevitable. But then during the next step of our political development, I would very much like to see as inevitably Russia coming back to the constraints, to the checks and balances of an international and I would repeat this, constraining system. So the the less isolation, the better. The more integration, the better. I understand that this may not sound not sound very convincing, especially in Germany, because in Germany there was the idea that economic integration would lead to uh, desired political changes. But I think, and this is of course what I'm thinking because I'm a legalist, that legal integration... And yes, given, giving away parts of your sovereignty to international structures like international courts or uh, being part of a union of sorts, again, putting constraints upon yourself, this may be a kind of safety net. As it has served as a safety net for many countries within the sphere of European influence, look at Hungary and Poland. Imagine Hungary outside of European Union. I think it could have evolved into a very pretty kind of personalized autocracy that would have jumped at a conflict with its neighbor of choice. All the prerequisites are there, but Hungary is part of a European Union, and when its leadership goes too creative, they get constrained. And so they have their flawed highly flawed, but still democracy. And the level of repression and violence is not high. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think we have to invite you back to have another podcast just on that topic, because, (laughs) you know, as as someone who deals a lot with international relations, I, I think there are schools out there that would say this attempt has been made to Russia and China in the past and hasn't worked because the adherence to some of those international constraints that you're describing has been very selective on those cases and that maybe people like Orban or Kaczynski or you know they benefit from the fact that they get the EU funding despite benefiting from some of those 
you know, creative ways. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, but, but that's another topic, uh, which I will be excited to There's hear. always something to trade. Yeah. Maybe not direct <laughs> funding, but then lifting of sanctions, uh, whatever. That's, that's not my field of expertise at all, but I can understand that, again, isolation is the root of all evil. Yeah. So yeah. to put it together, you would say the West should be open to explore the possibility of not isolating Russia When the completely. window of opportunity opens, for God's sake, make use of it. And this can be said to both sides, to all the sides. If we are fortunate enough to get a second chance, we need to exploit it to the hilt. Okay. That is a good statement that uh, I can subscribe to. <laughs> um, so towards the end of our conversation, we are always moving to slightly uh, lighter uh, topics, um, uh, uh, which is a bit of a break from, you know, this heavy stuff that we have talked about now. But one of the ideas of the fellowship is that both the fellows enrich the debates in, in Germany and in Europe with their expertise and their perspectives, but also that the fellows take something home Uh, on kind of a better understanding of German society, politics, European society. And so I guess my question would be like, what have you seen over the last months, year, now that you are here, uh, that you would say is a surprise or a highlight uh, in Berlin? Uh, and what is a negative surprise or disappointment? That's something that you didn't expect before you came. Well, uh, I will absolutely decline to answer the second part of your question. I have had <laughs> so many disappointments <laughs> coming from my own country that I absolutely had no, no space in my soul to be disappointed by anything in, in Germany. Uh, but I've been in Berlin many times, of course. Berlin has always been rather a capital of Russian studies, Germany's And Russia always interested in each other for a number of reasons, uh, military, economic, cultural, uh, etc. Uh, so I've been here at conferences, roundtables, academic events, etc. But of course, it's a different thing uh, to come for three days and to come with your family to live here for, uh, for, for a whole year. Um, It was not immediately that I was able to appreciate the very intense intellectual atmosphere of the city. Of course, it's the the country of universities, and it is, Berlin is specifically the city of universities, think tanks, your famous stiftungs that are very much centers of um, intellectual life, politically speaking. So uh, when I was, well, sane enough uh, to uh, begin some sort of rational communication, uh, then I understood how lucky I was to be in the center of this life where Every, every day and every evening something is, something is uh, happening. The level of Russian expertise in Germany has always been high. So it is something to learn from. Uh, what came, I, I wouldn't say as a surprise, but as a kind of revelation to me is the, I hope, better understanding of the endless complexities and intricacies of a democratic political system, specifically the, the parliamentary system. Uh, it is interesting for any scholar studying Russian parliamentarism to go to a German parliament because the forms are so like. We've been copying from you since Nicholas I, uh, the Tsar of Russia. So the, the composition of, of the chambers, uh, the uh, regulations, uh, the way the parliament is internally structured, it's so like. But then the substance is so different. And for someone who, like me, has been in and out of Russian parliament since 1999, to 
go and visit a really plenipotentiary uh, uh, parliamentary body, a legislative body that actually has the power and not just serves as a kind of administrative stock exchange for power groups to bargain in, although that also, this is one of the functions of parliaments anywhere, but still that has a kind of subjectivity, I would say, a political life of its own. That is, yeah, a gift that keeps on giving. Let's put it this way. Thank you. And the last question is always uh, the, the most personal, so to speak, of our interview. Um, and that is what moves our fellows outside of their work. Because, you know, the Russian legislative uh, systems and political um, uh, activities, both here and in your home country, are clearly what drives you and gives you energy. But, you know, we all watch Netflix or, you know, go to the cinema or read a book or listen to music. And so my question is, is there something that you would recommend um, that inspired you uh, in the last couple of months uh, that you want to share uh, in terms of art uh, in the widest sense? Well, shall I say that I have read a children's book about <laughs> rabbits that uh, I'm now using with my students to explain political models and political leadership, or will it ruin my reputation? No. <laughs> no. no. Uh, it will make everyone read the book. <laughs> uh, Richard Adams, Watership Down. Okay. Uh, there's also an animated series, and of course it's a book, children's classic. Um, I have um, read the biography of the author, found he's been six years in the army and after that on civil service. Uh, that kind of explains how well he uh, describes the dynamics of power. The series are rather dark. I must say it's not Bambi kind of rabbits. They live their dangerous and complicated lives, but... Um, The group of heroes, they come across various uh, rabbit societies organized along different um, forms of, I would say, political leadership. Some of them are autocratic and one is completely totalitarian. Uh, and their leader, the, the rabbit leader, is demonstrating these types of uh, and ways of uh, leadership behavior, which are uh, very well described. And so I'm both enjoying this <laughs> book myself and as I said I'm using it with uh, students I'm also I'm always have always been a huge fan of explaining things with um, animation or mm -hmm. cartoons or whatever because being a mother of three children this is about the only cinematic production I'm allowed to watch <laughs> uh, so I naturally consume a lot of this and uh, for example if you want to see the internal workings of an autocracy by the way it's an informational autocracy as well uh, watch the third part of Toy Story Mm -hmm. uh, the kindergarten, uh, the um, pink um, teddy bear, autocratic leader ruling both by force and by deception, deceiving his own nearest uh, circle, uh, also creating an illusion of hostile world outside. And then he's being toppled by a group of outsiders who bring information about how the world really works. And the whole thing, for example, his relationship with his law enforcement set of toys, it's all very, very, uh, I would say, um, picturesque and also understandable so you can explain a lot of things using this so i'm afraid i have not come up as a very intellectual uh person in this specific regard but then at least on the contrary i think in three months you will see an uptake in orders <laughs> of the book on, <laughs> on online stores <laughs> thank yeah. you and definitely intriguing i'm still having trouble imagining a carrot munching totalitarian rabbit the, but they're <laughs> they horrible this this totalitarian warren it's terrifying really <laughs> thank you so much ekaterina for sharing your thoughts and also some very insightful um, 
perspectives about an issue which is very personal for you. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in. As always, you'll find the details about the references that came up during the conversation in the episode description. And don't forget to subscribe our channel on all platforms and tell your friends about us. And if you have any feedback for us, do feel free to drop us a line at contact at robertboschacademy.de. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Bye-bye. We'll be back next month with our third episode with our guest, Obigel Ezekhevisili. She's from Nigeria and is a renowned economic policy expert and has held numerous positions in international organizations like the World Bank. And she was also a fellow of the Robert Bosch Academy back in 2019. Think. Debate. Inspire. A podcast of the Robert Bosch Academy, presenting inspiring ideas to address major challenges of our time. Subscribe to our podcast on all platforms.